Hey everyone, welcome back to Via, the podcast where together we're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. I'm your host, Matt Winley, and as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate you taking the time. I know there's a million different things you could be doing, but I hope these episodes are encouraging, that you're learning something, and that they are helping you follow Jesus more faithfully. We're continuing in our study of Jonah today. We'll be making it through the end of chapter 4, so we actually finished the the book uh, in this episode. But we're going to do one more Jonah uh, episode where we sum up the big takeaways, the big themes from the entire book as a whole. So look for that to come in the coming weeks. But before we dive into chapter 4, let's read it together. Uh, I like to read the passage out loud uh, because it gives us context before we dive into the minutia. If you ever have some trouble understanding a particular verse, I always encourage you to zoom out, look at the larger context, because most of the time that's going to help you begin to solve okay, what's going on in this particular instance. So I'll be using the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, I, I would encourage you, as you do your studies of Scripture, to use different versions. They help you see the nuances of the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, where you see differences in the versions. That's, that's normally when the English doesn't have a word that directly corresponds or an idea. And so it helps you kind of see the, the different nuances of what the, the writer could have been trying to say. But for our purposes today, we're doing the ESV. So this is Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and then it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? All right, so let's get into the details here. Starting in verse 1, what is the, the it that displeased Jonah? It starts off right away, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And, and then he has this you know, he pitches this hissy fit toward God. And I always have a hard time reading that that conversation between verse 2 and verse 4 where Jonah is talking to God because he's really angry. But he's describing the character of God in such a way that, you know, it, it doesn't seem like you should be really mad about that. But it's, it's always this hard thing to read out loud. I try it sometimes. It's just weird. Um, but what is this it that displeases Jonah? So we have to go back to chapter 3. What happens at the end of chapter 3? Jonah has preached the message that God has given him. He's, he's finally been faithful to that calling. The Ninevites heard it, and whether they repented, you know, that, that word has a lot of religious ba- uh, you know, baggage to it. And so whatever that means, they 
cried out to God, hoping to avert disaster, right? They, they put on sackcloth and, and, and ashes, and they called for a fast, and they're, they're, for all intents and purposes, it seems like they are repenting. Although we, you know, we could, we could have a conversation about whether they actually repented or not. But God saw their actions, and he deemed that they were appropriate. So that's why I say repenting. So they hear it, they repent as a whole, from the greatest of them to the least of them, and then God saw their change of heart, and he relents from disaster. That's the it. <laughs> God giving grace to people is the it that Jonah is mad about. Now, we're not given a specific time frame between the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, but I think it's reasonable to assume that the 40 days, or, or at least the majority of them, have elapsed, and Jonah realizes that God is not going to overthrow them. So it seems like Jonah waited around a bit to see what would happen. He, he preaches the message. Perhaps he's excited that it's potential, you know, that the, the destruction could happen, but he waits around. And we have no idea what he's doing in that time, but as, as time passes, it becomes clear that God is not going to destroy the Ninevites. And Jonah ends up having really big emotions about this. And interestingly, in Hebrew, the same word that's used to describe Jonah's emotions is the same word translated evil in chapter 1. So when it describes Jonah's feelings, that's the same word back in chapter 1 where God is deeming something evil. And it's almost as if Jonah is putting himself in the place of God. So whereas God was before, he was the one to make judgment. Now Jonah is doing so and determining for himself what's good and what is evil. So God looked upon Nineveh in chapter 1 and said, this is not right. I need you to go. And now Jonah is looking upon what God is doing, and he's saying, this is not right. And that should provoke some garden imagery, right? That should, that should make you think back to Genesis, the very beginning of the story, people trying to be wise in their own eyes instead of trusting in the goodness of God. God, I, we know better. We, we want to know better. We want to determine right and wrong apart from you. And it's clear that Jonah, he's not wrestling with his emotions here. He's not struggling you know, God, I want to love the Ninevites, but I'm having a hard time. You know, it, th- there's none of that happening. He's not unsure how he feels. In his own mind, he's righteously angry. It's one of those irrational anger moments where he loses all control to think rationally. He's not, he's, he's not able to really grasp what he's doing, or, or perhaps he does and he doesn't care. I don't know, but it, it seems like he is just spinning out of control. He's he's pitching what I said was an epic fit. And you're supposed to feel, as you read this in in verses 1 through 4, there's a sense in which I think the author wants you to feel how awkward and foolish this scene is. And, you know, consider contrasting Jonah's reaction with Abraham. When God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham begins interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. So while Abraham was looking to prevent judgment, Jonah is angry that it's not going to happen. It's this unfortunate reversal of the people of God. And this is why chapter 2 seems so odd. When we, when we look at chapter 2, and it seems like there's some redemptive value to what's happening in Jonah's life, that there's something good happening, but then the rest of the book paints him in an awful light. The rest of the book paints him in a, in a very negative picture. But one, one of the things that I want to do and, and maybe we'll talk more about this next week, I don't, or next episode, I don't know. But I want to remind ourselves that God loves and saves people like Jonah too. Because 
the the book is I think relentless in showing us the 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 deficits of Jonah's character and I think that's really one of the main points of the book aside from the fact that God loves everyone and not just the the people of Israel the people of Israel are supposed to be a conduit of God's love to the nations but there's also something we said for God revealing the 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 sin and the darkness in all of us we have tendencies just like Jonah and it's good to know that he's not unredeemable because neither are we and I can't help but think of James and John in the New Testament. I was I was trying to come up with who who's like Jonah in Scripture that we see take redemptive steps. And James and John were just a very obvious pairing to this. They're, they're, they're nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, and you don't they're not we're not given a reason why they're nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, but we get a story in Luke nine that perhaps gives us a little bit of insight. Jesus and his disciples they're traveling on their way to Jerusalem. And they need to stop for the night. So he sends some disciples into a Samaritan town to prepare a place for them to rest from their journey. And the Samaritans, they basically tell them, get out. We don't want you in here. We don't want your kind in here. Get out. Now, there's a history between the Jews and Samaritans. There's quite literal hatred among many on both sides. Very similar situation to Jonah and the Ninevites. But that's for another episode. So back into Luke 9, James and John, they're offended that anyone would treat them that way. But then you, you add in the fact that they're treating Jesus that way, and you listen to the reaction. See if you can hear any of Jonah in them. See if you can hear this, this contempt. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, This is a legitimate question that they asked Jesus. <laughs> Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I, I would... I just wish I could have been a, you know, around to see Jesus' face when that happened, to, to, to know what on earth was his initial reaction. Because that, that's, that's, that's a legitimate question that his disciples are asking him. These are guys who have been with Jesus. These are guys who have seen his incredible mercy. But you know what? They're still learning. And they're still growing. And they're still forming. And they still have sinned uproot in their own lives. And just like Jonah, they're eager to make the opposition pay. These are these are Samaritans. They don't like us. They hate us. They treat us poorly, just as our people treat them poorly. And Jesus rebukes them. But you know what? He doesn't reject them. James and John, they continue to be a part of Jesus' ministry, and God transforms their hearts, and we have their legacy that lives on today. Now, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that it's the same with Jonah. Again, if you go back to our very first podcast about Jonah... We don't know how the story of Jonah got transmitted to people, but one of the the theories that I think is a plausible one is that Jonah went back and perhaps, you know, had some self-reflection to do, and maybe he told this story or made or, or wrote this story up on his own because he understood what God was trying to tell him. That that's my that's my positive nature coming out. I, I want that to be true for Jonah, but no matter no matter Jonah is redeemable too, and if we have some of the same qualities as Jonah as James and John, we're redeemable as well. So in this book, he's not painted in a good light at all, but there's grace and mercy even for him if he'll repent. So back to our story. In verse 2, we're given a little insight into Jonah's motives back in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, God calls Nineveh, uh, Jonah go to Nineveh, preach to it, and he flees to Tarshish. So we're given a little bit of insight into why he fleed. 
uh, a glimpse into a conversation that he had with God that we weren't privy to back in chapter one. So I'll read it again. This is verse two, and this this is part of the, the 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 passage that I have a hard time reading in what I think would be the emotions that he's giving, but you'll get the point. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, "Is Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? See, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, that you're slow to anger, you're bounding in steadfast love, you're relenting from disaster. He's, he's full-fledged blaming God here. He's, he's essentially saying, God, I told you so. I knew this would happen. Look at what you've done. Jonah tells us exactly why he got on the boat to go to Tarshish. He wasn't scared of the Ninevites. He wasn't scared of the journey. He didn't think it'd be too hard. It's a long way. No, what really bothered him was that he knew God's character and that there was a chance that his enemies would receive grace. That there was a chance that God would relent. And it goes back to to chapter one. What was the message that Jonah was preaching to Nineveh? And it wasn't just, you know, God's going to destroy you because Jonah would have been happy to go and do that. But inherent in the message of God of of God telling them uh, there, there's going to be judgment if you don't uh, because of how you're acting is this opportunity for repentance for change and for salvation and Jonah Jonah did not like that if there was a chance that God would relent he didn't want it to happen and that's why he fled to Tarshish so how much pride do you have when you can say to God's face I know how you're going to act I, I, and I think you're wrong. <laughs> you know, I judge more accurately than you. The The description of God's character that, that Jonah uses would have been familiar to any Israelite. Because in every other instance in the, the Hebrew scriptures, it, it's a comfort to the people of God. God reveals himself in this way in Exodus 20, Exodus 34. We don't have time to go back and look at those. But you see echoes of it all throughout the Old Testament. This was the the basis for their hope, the foundation of their hope, because of who God is. The Israelites, they relied on the character of God. It was the, it was the constant in a very inconsistent world. It's, it's one of the, the reasons why, you know, I keep my head above water sometimes, because the world, is, the world is not predictable, and the world can really hurt you, and it's good to have someone who's consistent. And they had received his grace many times over, and yet here was Israel's prophet, the one who's supposed to know God, the one who 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 actually recites God's characteristics, but in a in a disappointed way. Um, and he's wanting to keep that grace all for himself and all for his people. You're a gracious God; that's only for us. You're a merciful God; that's only for us. You're slow to anger; that's for for us. Abounding in steadfast love; that's for us. And when and when we mess up and we want you to relent from disaster, that's for us, but not for them. That's what Jonah was so mad about. He's, he's upset that God's character extends out to other people. Now, based on the evidence at hand, um, Jonah looks at, he surveys the scene, he looks around, and he goes, you know what? It'd be better for me if I just died. So God, just kill me. Now, note, there's, there's nothing that we're aware of in the story, evil happening to Jonah. There's, there's literally nothing happening to Jonah. He's not being assaulted. He's not even being berated verbally. He's not being held captive. He's free to go about his own life. He doesn't have to think about the Ninevites for the rest of his life. He could take off anywhere he wants to. Literally, the only thing that bothers him so much that he wants to die is that he has seen his enemies 
receive mercy. Again, I think the author wants us to, to see the absurdity of that situation. There's another biblical prophet who, who acts in a very similar way. Elijah, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, he, he does the same thing. Both, both prophets had just fulfilled a, a commission that God had given them. Both aren't entirely pleased with the results. They didn't end the way that they were expecting them to end. God comes through, but not in the way that perhaps they had wanted. And so they both told God, just take my life. So you can go back and look in 1 Kings 19, compare those, see, see some of the lessons that you might take out from that. But in a twist here, Jonah, who had just praised God for delivering his life in chapter 2, and now he's ready to lose it so quickly in chapter 4, something that he was so excited that he had kept in chapter 2, he's now willing to give up in chapter 4. The very character of God that he had praised after his own rescue is now actually the cause of his own despair, which is absurd, right? It's crazy. And there's a lesson for us here. God doesn't always act the way that we want him to. If God never makes you uncomfortable, if you never feel challenged reading the scriptures or understanding who God is and what he's done, then it's possible that you aren't listening well or you are following a God of your own making. Because God is God and we are not. And sometimes he's going to make us uncomfortable. And we have to be willing to trust him even when we don't understand. Moving on, God, God responds to Jonah's dramatics with a question. He asks, do you do well to be angry? And, and there's a challenge in that question. He wants Jonah to think about it. Re- remember how we kept track of all the different Jonah-Cain comparisons uh, as we moved on uh, throughout the book? Like Jonah tracks along quite a bit with the character of Cain in Genesis. And this is another one. If you listen to Genesis 4, this is after Abel and Cain have offered sacrifices. And we're, we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 4 of Genesis 4. See if you can see some of the same terminology in Genesis 4 as you do in Jonah 4. Okay, this is Genesis 4, middle of verse 4. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So he's telling Jonah, in a sense, you've got the anger of Cain. Um, You know, you're you're acting the same way that this person did in in Genesis chapter 4. Because look at look at the comparisons here. You got the anger of Cain, and then you got this challenge around the idea of doing well. There's no, this is not a coincidence that the the writer of Jonah is picking up these this terminology from Genesis four. Both both Cain and Jonah, they both had a choice. Sin was crouching, wanting to overtake them, but but they could have ruled over it. And so Jonah, who should be following along the seed of the woman, you know, from Genesis three, is actually following the seed of the serpent, which is which is kind of the idea of, of Cain in Genesis 4. Um, but they, instead of ruling over sin, they allow sin to rule over them. Cain gives in, he responds by killing his brother. And in our story, we don't get a direct response to God's question. Jonah doesn't audibly answer God. People have varying reasons for that. We're not going to get into that. But the, the story just moves on to verse 5. There's, there's, it's, it's literally just God asking a question, and then just there's, there's no answer. There's no response. So Jonah travels to the east of the city to see what would happen to it. 
And in any other context other than, than scripture, this really wouldn't be bothersome. So what? He travels to the east of the city. That's fine. You know, and, and the question is, is he hoping that there might still be some chance for God to destroy the city? But if he's going east, think about the direction of, you know, go, go pick, take out a map, Israel, Nineveh, look at where they were. And think about why would Jonah travel east? It's certainly not the direction to head back home. He's, he's actually going opposite from home. So it's, it's a very odd place for him to go after he's given this message. So what, I'm think, what I think is happening here is it's possible that this mention of going east is picking up another biblical theme. Just as Jonah's characters align with Cain's, we got, we got another biblical theme that's popped up. And it, it's often used to symbolize movement away from God and his promises. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden to the east. Cain settles east of Eden after he's, um, after he's killed Abel and God curses him. The, the Israelites were exiled to the east, uh, Babylon, Assyria. There, there are exceptions, but anytime you see characters going to the east, it should at least pique your interest. There's something potentially happening that the author's trying to alert you to. So as Jonah goes to the east, the, the writer is probably making more of a theological point than a geographical one. But he goes to the east to see what's going to happen with the city. And he goes up there and he builds a temporary shelter. And God provides a bit of an object lesson for him at this point. He, As Jonah builds this temporary shelter, God miraculously causes a plant to grow up over and around the shelter, most likely. The, the hut probably provided some shade for Jonah, but the plant would have multiplied it by many degrees. And Jonah is very comfortable here. This is, a, this is a good place to sit and hang out and potentially watch his enemies be destroyed. And in fact, verse 6 says that he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Literally the same wording as he was exceedingly angry about the Nineveh situation. That's intentional. The writer wants us to compare and contrast these reactions of Jonah. But you know what? His satisfaction is short-lived. Just as God appointed the plant, the next day he appoints a worm to eat the plant. And then God appoints a scorching east wind. And now Jonah's really uncomfortable. And again, we see him asking to die. It'd be better for me if I was dead. Now, you might find this irrational, and it absolutely is. That's the point. But let's not be too hasty to cast judgment on Jonah. How often do we get irrationally angry about smaller, insignificant things when something else is bothering us? Jonah's angry about the plant, but really it's probably something that's boiled over from his anger about what's happening with Nineveh. You know, and this happens in our lives. Something so little can push you over the edge. Maybe you snap at someone who isn't part of whatever's bothering you. Maybe a small setback feels like a giant hurdle. I, I've been there. But Jonah isn't thinking straight here. He's, he's reeling. And even when God confronts him again, do you do well? Jonah actually answers this time. And he says, yes, yes, I do well. He, he's still claiming that he's the one who has the moral, moral superiority. He's the one who sees things straight and God doesn't. So God tries to draw the connection for Jonah. This is his last attempt to help Jonah see what, how God sees, see what God sees. And he essentially says, look, you pity this plant. And, and really, it's, it's probably due to his own personal discomfort. But let's just presume that Jonah really does feel bad for the plant. You pity this plant, but you, you didn't make that plant grow, right? You, you weren't responsible for it. it. It's come and gone in a day, Jonah. There, there was no long-term connection to this plant. Now, 
if, if, if that's how you feel about this plan, consider the people of Nineveh. I've made them. I've fashioned them for a connection with me. I created them, and I've known them since their birth. And they're lost. They're in distress. They're a mess. Their whole society, it's a mess. Jonah, do you, do you see why I might be heartbroken too? Now, if Jonah could feel sympathy for the loss of a plant that he did not create, how much more should God show sympathy for Nineveh, a city filled with people created in his image? That's, that's what God is trying to get Jonah to see. And I hope you sense the tension here. Jonah is in an indefensible position. And he has to square himself with that question. He has to look past his irrational anger. He has to look past his frustration and, see, and try to determine, am I seeing well? Now, a lot of people have asked, well, what's, the, what's with the number 120,000? So, some people would say that it's children that are so young they don't know their right from their left. That, that's, that's the description. Yeah, that's possible, but if you take that number of children and you, and you use it to arrive at the total population of the city, it seems too big. So most people would say if you have 120,000 children, it would lead to more than 600,000 adults. And at the moment, history doesn't support the idea that Nineveh contained over 600,000 people. Perhaps archaeology, archaeology will find something different, but I don't know. Is it plausible? Is it Sure, it's not completely ruled out, but I don't think that's the best option. What I, what I tend to think is it's the reference to their spiritual blindness, that they don't know their own way. They don't know their right from their left. They're not following after God, and so they're, they're lost. They're, they're directionless. And then you have this reference to the cattle, which is a very odd reference as well. Very, very interesting way to, to end a book for the author of Jonah. Why would, why would the cattle be mentioned? Does it, does it signify God's desire to redeem all of creation? Maybe. Um, I'm not convinced of a particular answer at the moment. I don't have one that I'm wholeheartedly set on. But one possibility that intrigues me is the idea that when human community is thriving and working the way that God intended, so we are in a flourishing relationship with him, that it's good for all, and that includes the cattle, right? But when it's not, when 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 we are at odds against God, when, when evil is flourishing, when there's injustice, when we're harming each other and we're harming the world, everything suffers. There, the, the, there is a connection between us and our environment, including the cattle. And so I think that, to me, that, that at least seems the most plausible of any answer that I've come across. But that's how the book ends. It ends very abruptly. We're not even told of Jonah's response. Again, we're, we're not given it. But I think that's perhaps the point, right? By not giving Jonah's response to God's correction, the, the book pushes the reader into Jonah's place. You know, we're, we're sitting here casually reading, and God asked the question, and instead of Jonah being put before God to answer the question, now we're put in that spot. You're forced to answer that question yourself. So do we understand? Are we willing to hear the rebuke and look within ourselves. Have we heard the messages in the book of Jonah, and will we act on them as we would expect Jonah to act? Just as Jonah needs to change, we need to change as well, and we rely on the very character of God that Jonah was so upset by. I love the story of Jonah. It's unusual. It's thought-provoking. It turns our expectations upside down. I love the, the fact that the prophet of God is acting like the fool, and, and I love that there's no 
ending <laughs> that, that we're, we're, we're forced to begin to consider these things because there's no neat and tidy ending. Not, not everything ends well. This isn't a fairy tale in the sense of, oh, look, everything turned out the best. No, we're, we're left with a little bit of uh, feeling uncomfortable. We're left with a little bit of, um, you know, haziness. It, it's not all, uh, you know, roses and sunshine. So we're forced to contemplate these questions. Um, are we willing to hear what God is saying? I, I appreciate your listening. I appreciate your support. We've got one more episode left in our Jonah series. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you're the first to know when that episode releases. And if you find this interesting, I just encourage you to share it with a friend. Uh, I want more people to be a part of our community so that we can help each other follow Jesus well. Thanks for walking on this journey with me. Jesus is worth it. Uh, I love Psalm 34 where it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And I hope you do that today. See ya.